Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. This week we'll discuss some new UCAS figures. We'll pull apart that big announcement on nursing students. Uh, Lincoln have done a thing on the future of universities. And are we about to see a student-led youth quake at the election? It's all coming up. Linking it back to the report where it talks about the transparency of research, I think universities could do more to use its unique assets and its research to actually improve and engage with the space in which it occupies. I mean, you know, a, a soft systems academic solving a ring road crisis in, a, in, the, in the city in which the university is in actually applying... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education policy, people and politics. I'm Jim Dickinson and here to spin the bottle of HE policy. As usual, we have a bang-up panel. Uh, in London, Joe Cooper is the Deputy Director of Human Resources at Imperial College London. Joe, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Uh, my highlight of the week was attending the uh, Cadets Question Time in my home constituency of Canterbury. Um, for after decades of being a safe seat, it's actually a political hotbed in a hotly contested election this year, so it's really enjoyable to watch. Excellent, and we'll come on to a bit of that later. In Guildford, another uh, interesting seat is Gemma Payne, President at Surrey Students' Union. Gemma, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Uh, my highlight was presenting what the student experience will look like in 2025 here at Surrey to the council members. Uh, and in Stoke-on-Trent somewhere <laughs> in the Red Wall, we have Wonky's Associate Editor, David Gernahan. DK, your magic moment of the week, please. Well, it's a magic moment to come, I think. Uh, my band are playing at the Berkeley Arms in Cam on Saturday night, uh, turning on the Christmas lights in Cam. Uh, so a big week this week. Thousands of university staff took to the picket lines. Uh, but as that's been going on, there's been plenty of other stuff happening. For example, there's some new UCAS figures. A record 541,000 students were accepted onto undergraduate courses this year as high offer rates, increased consideration of those from disadvantaged backgrounds and improvements to clearing gave applicants more choice than ever before. DK, what did you find? So there's loads in here. This is the first of three big chunks of data we're going to get from UCAS, next one next month, and the one everybody cares about with the institutions, so you can see how everybody got on at the end of January. Uh, this one is very much your overview, your sector-level stuff, um, all of the obvious statistics are moving in all of the obvious directions, uh, slightly more people received an offer than before, slightly more 18-year-olds got into university than before, Um number of people accepted through clearing rose 10 percent which is quite impressive i initially thought that might be because be because of this uh this uh kind of new thing the self-release students can uh, decide not to go to a place that they've previously accepted firmly without those awkward co- um conversations on the phone where you get escalated and you eventually end up getting free broadband for a year um so what I was expecting to see, there is some statistics, and I've stuck them on the site this morning. There, uh, what I was expecting to see with that self-releasing is that students would get better A-level results than expected, and they'd think, oh, I can go to a slightly more prestigious university, so they would actually move up the tariff bands. And that does not seem to be what's happening. Most of the movement is within the same uh, tariff 
band. So what I think we're seeing there is students that are changing their location of study for other reasons, just because they might have had a think and changed their mind. Maybe their mates are going somewhere else and they'll they want to go along with them but it just underlines for me how complicated the market for student places is and how difficult it is to uh reduce it to the kind of rational actor economic theory stuff that the dfe seemed to like joe i guess the interesting big press story of the day was i mean they all tried to find an angle and then copied each other's angle was uh over half of applicants not achieving their predicted a levels but most of them still getting into the university of their choice yeah i think I think I can see the headlines as we speak ticking in around um, the, uh, the reduction in the requirements and more than half of students getting, uh, low, are getting in with a lower grade. But I think there's some more interesting stuff in the numbers. I mean, you can see uh, by the increase in uh, non-European students, you can see uh, through the reduction in entry requirements. But also there is a, a neat little stat in there about the um, increase in mature students, and which is kind of at, at its highest point. Those, those kind of things are what's evidence of what the what the um, sector is doing to cope in a situation where supply is outstripping demand. Some really interesting ways of, of addressing that kind of demographic dip we've got at the moment. But what I'm going to find interesting is when that reverses over the next five years, how, how has that transformed the sector? And then how do universities readjust for when, when that situation changes? Yeah, and, that, and Gemma, that's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the story that UCAS were keen to put out is that this is very much a buyer's market. There's lots of choice available to students and so on. But, you know, before the kind of number of 18-year-olds tick up, I guess what that does lead to is lots of universities having quite interesting sales and recruitment tactics yes i think it's really interesting to see how clearing works and i think for me this year's been the first time i've seen the other side of clearing i actually came through to surrey myself through as a clearing student um which i think definitely puts a different kind of spin to a university experience um and i think it's interesting actually around that marketing kind of some of the pre things they do before you arrive at um, to university around marketing is allow you to come and see the university yeah, a lot of the clearing students don't get that opportunity. And I think that's quite a different experience in that sense as a clearing student. You don't have the moment where you can learn about your institution. And I think, actually, I think institutions need to take more responsibility for the students they take in through clearing in that way. Yeah, I mean, DK, this is fascinating, isn't it? Because I did see one comment on Twitter today that suggested that, you know, all the traditional students are, are, are getting in through the traditional route and then universities are propping up their WP numbers through all this clearing opportunity. And the trouble with that is there's, there's, there's less choice available by then. Uh, I don't know if that's the case, uh, to be honest. I mean, nearly every university was in clearing last year. Um, I think it was only Cambridge didn't. Um, so... Um, Universities are increasingly seeing clearing as the the primary way that they will get a lot of students. Um, but I wanted to come back to your earlier point on the um, headlines that we saw everywhere about students not getting their predicted grades but still getting into the university of their choice. I think that's the first time we've had those figures. We don't get a time series, but it didn't surprise me because it's like that's always been what has happened. Um, students have always underperformed their A-level results on average by three or occasionally two tariff points. That's uh, pretty much all, always something you can uh, factor in. And it just underlines for me the fact that uh, recruiting on actual A-level uh, grades is a really, really bad idea. 
And Joe, obviously we have uh, at least one of the major political parties uh, very much saying that uh, it would implement PQA. Who knows how, but post-qualification submissions could happen if we have a Labour government. Well, yes, it's, uh, I think it's one of those ideas that we can all align around in theory, but how you, how you can move from where we are to, to implement that in reality, I'm, I'm really not sure. I don't even think that uh, we can al- al- align about it in theory. The uh, kind of wonk idea trend has turned sharply away from uh, PQA. Um, it did last time we came around that there was a, a lot of um, pushback. It's kind of one of those uh, superficially attractive ideas, which the more you think about it, the more you realise it's actually a pretty terrible idea. So pretty much like the rest of the Liber Manifesto in that way. <laughs> and Gemma, I mean, these are obviously by and large sector-wide figures, but I guess one of the really interesting things is what happens both between institutions and within institutions where, you know, you might hit the numbers that you want, but some courses over-recruit and some courses under-recruit. Yeah, we've certainly seen that at Surrey in its um, entirety. We, two years ago now, had um, the famous Odeon incident, we call it at Surrey, where um, they over-recruited in computing science. They had to actually teach in a local Odeon cinema so, um, Did you get free popcorn? That's what we always joke. At least you could eat in that lecture theatre, unlike our ones. Um, but I think, yeah, that's the point, isn't it, often? It's the where you prop the numbers up with. Um, this year, I know we can talk about it later anyway, but our nursing cohort's been a lot lower this year, but other cohorts seem to be propping it up. And that's where you end up with things like our business cohort, which is over 700 per year, which I think is one of the biggest cohorts that exists, really. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, it's Claire Taylor here. I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Professor of Education at Wrexham Glyndor University. So my opinion piece um, this week uh, picks up on long hours working in higher education, um, especially within our academic communities. Um, This seems to be a real live issue. It was prompted by uh, a tweet by the lovely Mary Beard, um, who um, suggested that she was working 100 hours a week uh, and wanted to know what was perceived as normal for academic colleagues. And certainly the uh, responses um, suggest that we do have a problem across higher education uh, in terms of some outrageously long hours. Uh, And obviously it's been part of the focus of uh, UCU action this week as well. So a a real uh, topic that's very live. But I also think that there's a growing appreciation within our universities that things have to change uh, and that personal health and well-being is coming much further up the agenda. We have to give ourselves permission to positively consider how we're going to look after ourselves so that we are actually better at work. And my key point in the piece is that change must start at the very top um, with university leaders modelling behaviours that recognise the need to invest in our own personal health and well-being, caring for ourselves so that we can care for others and create truly positive working environments, uh, productive working environments and happier working environments. Now, next up, the Conservatives launched their manifesto this week with a signature promise to bring in 50,000 nurses that apparently fell apart quite quickly, not least on Good Morning Britain. Not that I watch Good Morning Britain, uh, but because I'm always helping my colleagues with the daily. Uh, anyway, uh, and there was a promise to restore elements of maintenance grants for nursing students too. Gemma, tell us more. Yes, yeah, so I was lucky enough to watch that segment on uh, Good Morning Britain. It was, it's a very interesting watch if anyone fancies seeing it. Um, So, yeah, this was a really interesting pillar of the Conservative Manifesto for us. Um, We've got a huge nursing cohort here at Surrey and they form a really large part of our health and medical sciences. 
Um, what really caught me, my attention for the most part was that introduction of a maintenance bursary, which actually a lot of the manifestos touch on in some way or another. Um, and from Surrey's perspective, our nurses, when they're out on practice, do a 37 and a half hour week. Um, but that's not paid. And so often they find they're topping up that with some sort of part time work which means many of our nurses are ending up working well over 40-hour weeks in order just to make ends meet, which I don't think anyone would suggest is a great circumstance to be in. And then, so what's quite interesting is to see more about what they're actually going to do to calculate this grant that they're talking about. I think a 5,000 to 8,000 figures is what's been sort of mentioned, but certainly from in Guildford, if you try to live off £5,000, that's not really going to even touch the edge. The uh, average rent per year is £6,000. Um, in Guildford so you're already a thousand short so I think it's an interesting promise but I'm not sure if they've actually looked into how much it actually costs to live whether they're just going on what they think it is. Yeah and DK this is interesting isn't it because um, you know as we've said on the site over the past week in some ways what really matters to students day to day is how much money they've got in their pocket and the mix between maintenance loans and maintenance grants really matters. Uh Completely, yeah, and it's always fascinating at election time to see people making promises about tuition fee loans. When for a lot of students, that not that is not the issue. The issue is in living costs. The issue is in um, maintenance uh, grants and maintenance loans. I was really expecting at least one of the parties to make a serious offer in that space after Orga failed largely to address it and i don't think anybody really has you've got little bits and pieces around the edge labor are on about uh, grants for the poorer students but that's just back to the uh 2015 levels it's not a particularly transformative promise um and you've got the return of the bursaries but uh to kind of slightly go against what i've just said in nursing it used to be the case you had your bursary and you had the tuition fees paid as well so you could afford maybe to run up a bit of loan debt during your studies and then you wouldn't be uh, paying back the 27,000 tuition fees as you start your working life, which is attractive for quite a few uh, people. So, I mean, my concern with this um, nursing stuff is it's often the case with political promises. It's the rate of expansion. It's the fact that we need effectively two... um, nursing schools the size of East Anglia, which is largest in the country each year, if we're going to take in enough nurses studying full-time in order to get the extra numbers that are promised by the end of the next parliament. Um, That would require something in the region of 200 extra nursing academic staff, and I mean, they're pretty thin on the ground. And it would also require an uptick in the number of people applying to do nurses uh to do nursing that went up a little bit this year but not enough to uh, get back to 2016 levels so uh nursing schools are f- fishing from a smaller pool which uh creates its own problems yeah and joe one of the interesting things about the last few years is that that uh you know that kind of cohort of nursing applicants applicants has definitely skewed younger and you know this kind of balance between uh, adult learners mature learners and, and, and young learners must be actually quite interesting from an NHS perspective because you'd want people to stay in the career for a long time from an HR perspective yeah and that's that's absolutely that's that's why the kind of there's the conservatives sticking with the 50,000 
compar- uh, number baffles me a little bit because I think it would be completely legitimate to say we want to bring in X thousand new nurses and y- and retain Y thousand nurses by improving the employment experience or employment conditions. That, that would seem to be a completely reasonable thing to say. And I don't know if it's purposeful dead cattery, but it does uh, uh, mean they can avoid a conversation about actually how they're going to implement it and i think there's, there's two things at play here to be fair looking at the manifesto they do talk a little bit about the nhs as an employer making that more a more attractive place uh, to work but they don't give a lot of detail about how they're going to do it but then in terms of creating the new positions just to pick up on dk's point in his article uh, on the site today that's a massive practical challenge uh, not, not not only in terms of creating the capacity to train uh, those people but to make the course which um as we've pointed out, is a really challenging thing to undertake. I studied alongside nursing students in Canterbury when I was an undergraduate, and they work incredibly hard, uh, really difficult conditions. So you've got to convince people that that's not only the course of study for them, but actually that's a career they want to commit to um, uh, you know, for, for a large part of their lives. And that's 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 a really fundamental challenge that we'll need tackling before we get anything, anywhere near those numbers. And, and Jenna, look, you, 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 you saw that exchange on Good Morning Britain. Obviously, there was what some people perceive as a sleight of hand around uh, nursing retention once they're in the career but I mean there's, there's certainly a huge retention issue for uh, students while they're on the programme Yeah absolutely I mean it's a, it's a really intense course to be on you're working around the clock you're watching your fellow undergrads who are only having to do 12, 14 hour weeks um, of sort of contact time and it's a completely different experience and I think the amount of pressure you're under and the amount of unique support you get doesn't really equate there's very little in the way of unique support for nurses as opposed to support that every student gets anyway because um, I and I think that was really interesting that sort of nine the 19,000 counting towards the 50,000 um, and I think going back on what DK said earlier about the where they're going to go I think that's what really struck me about that increase I don't think at Surrey we could take many more nursing students in the facilities we've got they require quite specific facilities as well you know we have demonstration surgeries and flats so that people can experience going into those settings and I'm not sure you can just produce those quickly and replicate them in different areas. Now every week we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar Mike Ratcliffe here's the hidden history of HG. How did we end up with a system whereby the government pays for higher education or used to pay for higher education depending on on how policy may have shaken out in the general election? Um, one of the key triggers for this is the First World War, where the universities are very useful to the state. They help in making munitions and they help with you know, textiles work and develop sonar and all sorts of things. But there's a huge meeting organised, which happens 12 days after the armistice in uh, 1918, whereby 67 people come in from universities to meet the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the President of the Board of Trade to talk about the next stage of university funding and to make the case for there being proper funding for universities. Uh, and they sit there uh, and they, they have great speeches made and there are lovely minutes of these things of this deputation to the Board of Education uh, by all these university vice-chancellors. Uh, and they make clear po- notes. So, for example, uh, 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 Sir Thomas Ackland notes that um, uh, they government's been spending something like £67 million a day on fighting the war. Surely it could find £2 million a year to support universities. So you've got a mixture of people in the room. So you've still got what are self-declared modern universities. 
So, the principal of the University of Birmingham speaks first, uh, and he decide, you know, he, he focuses on that professors should be paid more money, uh, and, therefore, uh, and this is important because it also enable the university to throw its doors open to a wider class of the community. Uh, and then they talk about how the new PhDs are going to work and how they will develop research uh, work. Uh, and he talks happily about not just doubling the university grant, but quadrupling it, because it has been supposed to have been doubled in 1915. Uh, and then there's a succession of people who talk about uh, the effect that universities have in, in boosting the nation. Um, and then there's a, uh, uh, the Vice-Chancellor of the National University of Ireland, Sir Bertram Windle, uh, who sounds like a character from a Terry Pratchett book. But Sir Bertram Windle, uh, he talks about um, how German education uh, had suffered so badly um, and that British, uni- British education was so much better and worth supporting by, by the government. Uh, they talk about the opportunities that, that, that science had done during the war, uh, and they talk about how much science they'd done and how they could fight submarines much better if they, you know, universities were better funded. Uh, and then finally, Andrew Bonalor, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, makes a cautious reply. How unusual. Uh, a cautious reply from the man in charge of the money. And he says, well, we'll have, we'll have a think about this, uh, but we should uh, desire that the university should extend right down to the very bottom of our social system. Uh, it's a great access statement uh, there. Uh, and then finally joined by um, H.A.L. Fisher, who's president of the Board of Education, who's been a vice-chancellor himself. Uh, and he sets off, and the minutes record the, the reaction to his little speech at the end. I'm convinced, and my conviction has been deepened by the impressive mass of testimony which I've heard today, of the necessity of a very much more liberal assistance from the state to higher learning in the country. Cheers, it says in the notes. Uh, and I'm equally convinced from my own long connection with the universities of the great value of preserving university autonomy. Cheers, it says again. So obviously they were very happy with uh, Fisher's response, uh, and off they go. So we get all the mechanisms that we then run for the next year. We get the University Grants Committee, the Haldane Principle, the funds that come in place. Slowly there's a, a much more in the way of grants for students, particularly if they're going to do teacher training. Uh, and so it comes from that grand meeting with these 67 uh, people, 66 of whom were men, uh, um, sat in this room uh, saying why universities should be funded by the state. Now, this week, the University of Lincoln launched their manifesto for a 21st century university, uh, designed to display some deep thinking around how higher education can respond to an increasingly complex and rapidly changing world. Uh, the perfectly timed manifesto exposes a radical gulf between the most interesting thinking on the future of HE coming out of universities themselves and the views of the political parties on what a credible policy for the sector would look like. Joe, tell us more. Uh, thanks, Jimmy. Yeah, so this report has come out of the University of Lincoln's 21st Century Lab, so kind of co-authored by Mary Stewart, who's their VC. Uh, and his shot. Uh, I mean, they do talk about this not being a future-escaping uh, document, but they must have had some magical foresight when they did, when they managed to launch a, a document with the titled uh, manifesto and coinciding it with a launch uh, with an election campaign. So, we're ticking the box before we start. Um, so, the document firstly sets out ten grand challenges for the 21st century, which I think resonate with kind of what you'd expect to see. It talks about uh, avoiding environmental and ecological catastrophe. It talks about the, the impact of technological disruption. Interestingly, interestingly, it talks about a leadership gap and describes that as a void of vision and foresight, which is um, pretty strong. But then it kind of pictures universities as part of the solution, but outlines that universities need to change more effectively and more quickly in the context of this rapidly changing and volatile environment that we, we operate in. So, it introduces this notion of a permeable university. It kind of describes that as a lens to kind of uh, see all the challenges that universities are facing. Uh, and it uses that lens to kind of outline uh, some quite high level ideas of how universities can change to increase their influence. So 
uh, in education, research and engagement, it talks about bringing students closer into the community of scholars and having two-way challenges part of the education process. It talks about bringing teaching closer to research, which is something that's really close to our hearts here at Imperial. It talks about doing better at connecting with wider society and addressing these sort of deep challenges um, and taking time to address those challenges in, a, in an environment where actually we're expected to, uh, to answer questions and respond to things incredibly quickly. Uh, so it doesn't just talk about kind of education and research, it talks about how universities are governed, it talks about the need for more inclusive governance structures uh, and having diversity in debate as part of governance and being less formal uh, in, in our approach to how we're governed as, as institutions. And it also talks about how the system uh, and the sector can change uh, and that regulation should enable experimentation, be more values driven and that the, um, the transparency of not only of the process but the outcomes of research that's funded um, essentially uh, is more transparent to, to, to wider society. So loads of high level ideas in there. It's a, it's a really good read, uh, some interesting case studies. Uh, I guess the kind of two questions that kind of it left me with is, firstly, this concept of permeability, uh, how useful is it? Kind of it outlines that permeability is a new lens which reframes the core activities of university and that a permeable university would remove barriers to interaction within and beyond the institution. So I, I don't know, is this a term we're going to start using more widely and it's going to have an impact in terms of the decisions that we make? Uh, and, and I guess more broadly, this is a kind of quite high-level thoughtful report, but how do these, these reports have an impact within the sector? Uh, who, you know, who would it need to influence and how would it need to influence to actually achieve some of the changes that it outlines? And I do think there's a link with Debbie's piece in Wonky today, because she's suggesting that universities can do more during an election cycle to outline what government could do to create an environment in, a, to, in order to help universities to have a greater impact, rather than taking a more sort of defensive posture and focusing on, uh, directly on, on, on policies that relate to how HE is, is governed. Jammer, there's a lot in here about uh, place and, and, and a university's kind of relationship with its, you know, kind of region or, or, or local area. And, you know, I wonder how some of these concepts might play out in, for example, a place like Guildford. Yeah, Guildford's a really challenging environment. We've, um, despite being here for a number of years, I think it was always felt like it was the place on top of the hill and it was the dreaded, that dreaded place that only students went to and no one else should have to go anywhere near it and neither should they have to come to us. So, um, I think it's always been a real massive challenge, um, and I think I think it's, I don't know how well you. I don't know what changes you can make actually in place sometimes without really looking at. I think the issue of unification in the area. Um, we see it certainly with the surrounding parts of Guildford, um, the parts that surround the campus, and I think more work has to be put on the local council, I think, to help with that. I think that's a major part of improving that relationship. Yeah, DK, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, there's lots in here about positivity, but I guess, you know, the the, the, the kind of general tone of town-gown relations is, is quite negative for all sorts of good reasons in lots of towns and cities. Yeah, I mean, um, as uh, Gemma points out, um, it is linked to a very particular perception of this sense of place. There's been a lot of transformative work going around in Lincoln for a number of years now. And obviously in, uh, in Mary, they do have one of the sectors more thoughtful uh, vice chancellors, I think, about this kind of issue. But um, the it's not um, the old conceptualization of town and uh, gown conflict was uh, kind of based largely on the ideas of Oxford students running riot in restaurants. Um, I think it is uh, more an issue. Well, apparently it doesn't happen anymore and it's all completely different now. I'm reliably informed. Um, so, I mean, 
I think the issue of not so much town and gown is not so much a link to a particular locality, although that is important. It is a link back to the wider idea of um, civil society nationally. Now, I mean, universities are increasingly off to one side of that. I mean, universities increasingly get a kicking for all kinds of reason, including the fact that their local council, which have nothing at all to do with them whatsoever, has messed up voter registration. And it just feels like the idea of a university is antagonistic to what seems to me emerging as the contemporary culture of Britain. And that really worries me. I think with this idea of uh, permeability and about uh, flexibility and about actually being able to be more responsive, I think that this manifesto is on to something. And I think it's interesting. But just to pick up at this point about how universities are engaging in their communities, I mean, it, it's obviously important that that kind of relationship management stuff is done and done well and uh, you know, making sure that students you know, don't leave their bins out on the wrong day and, and all that kind of stuff is, is really important because there is, a, there is a, a tension there in any university town. But linking it back to the report where it talks about the transparency of research, I think universities could do more to use its unique assets and its research to actually improve and engage with the space in which it occupies. I mean, you know, a, a soft systems academic solving a ring road crisis in a in the, in the city in which the university is in actually applying those skills and, and capabilities that the university has to actually uh, improve the, uh, the you know the, the cities in which they, they exist would, would go a long way to uh, not only improving relationships but actually having a practical impact uh, on the world around them now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that sets trends dem man copy, just like the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. This week I've been playing with the latest data drop from the Student Loans Company, and I'm wondering if the percentage change from the number of students applying for full-time undergraduate English system tuition fee loans over the last two years correlates with the percentage change in the number of academic staff at a university. Do more undergraduates mean more academics? Does it correlate? I would really love to say that yes, it does correlate and there's a positive correlation. But I think whilst it would be in an ideal world, you'd hope to think more students would mean more academics. But I think if it's anything like the pressures at Surrey, we've certainly seen that actually there's not a growing, there's a growing amount of money needed. So I think it's more that let's get students in to support the the people we have rather than the other way around, which I think maybe that's just me being sceptical and my experiences. I wouldn't expect to see a correlation over that time frame. I think over a very long period, you'd expect if the volume goes up, then the amount of academics would go up. I think it's not a long enough period to see that happen. Also, I'd expect to see more of an impact in more teaching-driven institutions than in research-driven institutions for obvious reasons. So I, I think for those reasons, there probably isn't a a noticeable correlation? The answer is no. R squared is 0.005, and that doesn't change much, even if you look at HEIs in England only. Clearly, changes in staffing levels have little to do with changes in student numbers. What we're seeing here is the difference in recruitment of what, for many providers, is their bread and butter income. Data is from HESA and the SLC, and where the data doesn't exist, or is null, I've not plotted it. 
And finally, it was the voter registration deadline for the general election this week. On Tuesday, 600,000 people registered to vote before the midnight deadline. Uh, That includes 252,000 between the ages of 18 and 24. And there were 2.3 million applications to register uh, since the election was called before the 2017 election. And this time, that figure is 3.8 million. DK, could uh, could this make a difference? Uh, Well, there's one very obvious question we need to ask. Where do these young people live? Uh, which constituency are there in? I mean, the interesting thing about polling in this election is the high level of people who don't know who they're going to vote for. Because obviously they've looked at all of the candidates, they've looked at all of their manifestos, and they've thought, meh. But a lot of people do realise that they do want to vote because w- one particular party in particular is terrible. And that kind of varies from person to person. But there's a lot of... N- a lot of negative uh, voting choices. Um, if you pulled a number of people that um, definitely would not vote for Labour and definitely would not vote for Conservatives and so on, that would be interesting. But it's really difficult to say. Gemma, there's obviously been lots of focus on uh, students this time around. Will they tactically vote? Will they register? Will they turn out? Have you got any sense from, uh, you know, from Guildford? Well, I think Guildford's going to be extremely interesting this year. Um, so historically, it's a Tory seat, has been for years. But Anne Milton, our previous MP, was one of the Tory rebels and is now standing as an independent, which I think is going to really divide the Conservative vote in Guildford. There's a massive feeling of sort of, I suppose, a tie to Anne Milton over the number of years. So I think for a student perspective, I think their vote could really make a difference this year, depending on what they say. We, um, we did have our hustings held here at the university, actually, um, and it was really interesting. There was a lot of support for Liberal, but also a lot of support for Anne within the room as well. Um, so I think it's going to be a really close one, especially since our Liberal candidate is actually an alumni to Surrey University as well. So um, lots of interesting personalities, I think, in the debate this year. And, and Joe, not only is uh, uh, Guildford definitely one to watch on election night, but Canterbury is too, and you're familiar there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Canterbury, after being a safe toy seat for more than 100 years at the last election, uh, uh, was won by uh, Rosie Duffield from Labour by a couple of hundred votes. And the on the day, uh, people knew that something was up because they were queuing out of the doors uh, at the ballot boxes uh, in and around the universities. Um, so it was very clear that the kind of student vote made the difference in Canterbury. Uh, this time round, it's got to be incredibly close as well. It's become a very, very interesting seat. The Lib Dem candidate pulled out of his own volition to make way for the incumbent Labour candidate because she's a Remainer. Uh, the Lib Dems then parachuted a, a new candidate in and the local Lib, uh, Lib Dem uh, party have disowned that candidate and are campaigning for the Labour candidate. So it's a, an absolutely intriguing seat. Uh, what's, I think linking this back to the registrations, what will be interesting uh, to find out is how many of these are students who have realised where they're going to be on election day and have re-registered to make sure they're able to vote uh, given the last minute nature of the election and the, uh, and the unusual time of year so hopefully it will make, make a difference but we'll see And DK I'm not, I'm not really clear on this but I mean do, do the polling companies take into account the uh, you know the kind of narratives in each seat and, and, and actually do they how do they work out you know what turnout is likely to be like in each of the different kind of age categories because presumably you know this this, this spike in registration skews some of their models if they're basing it on the last election? Um, for national polls, they do take into account likelihood of voting. That tends to be like self-reported. They just basically ask them. I think there's only one of the pollers uh, 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 
Kantar, I think, actually based that on a demographic thing. Everybody else does not. Um, for national polls, they tend not to take into account any kind of constituency uh, um, weirdness. Even the... Um, I forget the fancy statistical name of the big poll that um, you gov have just done. Um, I think it's um, a regression and post-stratification where they look at um, a big set of national polling and they see how would that would play out in a local constituency uh, based on the way that constituency is made up. Um, the only... Um, you do get little bits and pieces of, um, like actual constituency polling where they just ask people in that constituency. It's quite expensive to do. And there was loads of it in, uh, 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 2015 because everybody was really into Nate Silver at that point. But it seems to have largely faded away apart from the liberal, the liberal Democrats, uh, actually pay for quite a lot of it to um, make their nonsense bar charts. And, and Gemma, let me ask you this. I mean, how engaged do you get a sense that students are this time around? Because, you know, I've certainly seen general elections where, you know, student union nightclubs are packed out all night as people watch the results. And I've seen others where there's just real sort of disdain and apathy for the whole process. And I, I don't really get a sense of what it's like on the ground this time around. Here, it's, there's certainly a lot of, a lot of rallying around. Um, we've seen our politics society suddenly come to life. Um, they actually were the one that organised the entire hustings, invited the local residents, um, chaired the debate itself. Um, they've also, we are having a nightclub night with, um, it is timing nicely with a funk soul night as well, so that'll be an interesting mix of funky soul <laughs> politics, um, just as you always want. That's a perfect night. Yeah, I know, it's an ideal, it's an ideal night. But um, So hopefully we're looking to have quite a busy night and hopefully I think quite an engaged population this year. I think a lot of the students really feel like this is their moment now that Brexit and it was the feeling that Brexit result became because they didn't engage um, and certainly at Surrey that's what it feels like the fee- the feeling is Just a, just as an aside the, uh, at the hustings I was talking about um, earlier one of the candidates I won't say from which party uh, made, uh, made a, a terrible mistake by welcoming everybody to the university at Kent not realising they were actually at Canterbury Christchurch University <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Well, we've all done that. Right, so that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Joe, Gemma and DK, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen, and of course to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.